Thanks for listening. The following is an audio presentation from High Country Christian Church. For more information, please visit www.highcountrychristian.com. going to continue this morning, and we have been tackling each week four chapters at a time of the book of Acts, which is just an astronomically large lump of scripture to tackle each and every Sunday, but we've been doing it anyways. And so we've invited you to read along. Uh, we created a, a, just a, a simple reading plan, a reading list. If you did not get that, they'll put a, a slide up at the end of service today. You can take a picture of it and see what the reading plan is and jump in with us. Today we're going to be tackling chapters 17 through 20, and I'm just going to read you my, my little synopsis here, my little summary of these four chapters. Acts chapter 17 continues with Paul and Silas traveling to Thessalonica, continuing to preach in synagogues and using the scriptures to convince their fellow Jewish countrymen that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. How many of you know it's good when you use the scriptures to prove a point? Amen. The trend that we've seen in previous chapters continues where some of the Jews who rejected Paul's teachings because of their own jealousy of his results create problems for him by stirring up angry mobs to attack him. The mob attacks the household of a Christian man named Jason, whom Paul and Silas are staying with. Although, by the time the mob arrived, Paul and Silas had departed. They continue on to the city of Berea to find an audience there that is eager and receptive to their message. They are open-hearted to Paul's teaching, yet they search the scripture to determine the truth of what Paul has said to them. However, As soon as the Jews from Thessalonica hear about this, they travel to Berea, creating more trouble for Paul yet again. Starting to see a pattern here, huh? After being urged by the believers in Berea, Paul travels alone to Athens, awaiting Silas and Timothy there. Troubled by all of the idolatry that he sees in Athens, and while ministering in the public square, Paul encounters the Athenian philosophers who are taken back by Paul's message regarding specifically the resurrection of Jesus. As they press him further on the matter, he fully preaches the gospel to them in response and insists upon the miraculous resurrection of Jesus from the dead. At this, some believe, while others mock Paul's words. Some are converted and some are not. In chapter 18, Paul departs Athens and comes to Corinth, where he will meet Aquila and Priscilla, Jews and fellow ministers who have left Italy after Claudius Caesar deported all Jews from Rome. This connection is very important, as Aquila and Priscilla would become key allies and fellow laborers in Paul's life and ministry. This chapter also introduces us later on to another of Paul's ministry partners, a man named Apollos, whom the Bible says is a profoundly gifted preacher from Alexandria in the north of Africa. During this chapter, detailing Paul's time in Corinth, we see him make a fundamental shift in his ministry. 
That is, he decides that he will no longer preach primarily to the Jews, but rather he would begin to focus on ministering to the Gentiles. A profound lesson can be learned here for you and I. That is, that it's always valuable to spend your time pouring your life into the places where your labor produces fruit. Paul wasn't having very much fruit in the synagogue, but he was having tons of fruit with the Gentiles. Amen. We'll talk more about that later. God speaks in this moment to Paul in a vision and tells him to be bold with the message that he's preaching, and he stirs up Paul's heart to press on. In total, he spends roughly 18 months in Corinth, and after that, returns to many of the cities he has previously visited, strengthening and encouraging the believers there. In chapter 19, Paul travels to Ephesus. The year is 52 AD, and it's been 20 years since the day of Pentecost and Peter's preaching in Jerusalem. Isn't that crazy? It's just like you can read the book of Acts in like an hour, but it spans 33 or 34 years. It's incredible. It's been 20 years since the day of Pentecost and Peter's preaching in Jerusalem. And Paul, in the city of Ephesus, meets 12 men who are already Christians And he asks them, have they received the Holy Spirit since they have trusted Christ? Previously unaware that there was such a thing as the Holy Spirit, they're eager to receive. And Paul ministers to them and lays hands upon them, and they receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit and begin to speak in new tongues. Just the same precedent which happened 20 years prior in Jerusalem. This experience leads to an explosion of the gospel in the city of Ephesus, resulting in a citywide revival. Paul is ministering with such demonstration and power that people were being healed, of de- healed and having demons being cast out of them simply by coming into contact with handkerchiefs and clothing that Paul had touched. That's, that's wild. Amen. Man, if that don't light your fire, your wood's wet. Hallelujah. All in all, Paul will spend three years here in Ephesus, and as a result, both a vibrant move of God and a new church will be born in this city, a church which would become the largest and arguably most influential church in the known world, a church of tens of thousands of people whom Timothy would later pastor, and to whom, years later, Paul would write one of his most profound letters. We, of course, know this as the book of Ephesians. A great uproar results in Paul and Silas departing once more for a new city. And chapter 20 finds them visiting Greece and Macedonia once again. While passing through the city of Troas in one evening, Paul ministers to the believers there and proceeds to preach until midnight. As he's preaching, a young man sitting on the edge of an open window falls asleep and then falls three stories to his death. Unmoved. I mean, you want to talk about a crazy church service. (laughs) Unmoved, Paul goes down to where the young man's body is laying, takes him into his arms, raises him back from the dead, and continues preaching until dawn. Y'all thought these services went a little long every now and again. Paul preached till dawn. The young man returns home completely unharmed by this experience, and Paul travels on to a place called Miletus. Something really significant happens here in Miletus. This is actually the closing of a door of this phase of Paul's ministry. 
Here he has what he knows will be his last meeting with the elders of the church from back in Ephesus. Paul explains to them that he is bound for the city of Rome and he will never return to the region where so many of his beloved churches are, especially the church of Ephesus. He instructs them to continue his faithful ministry of the gospel, not relenting at the persecution which he knows they will face after he's gone. Standing upon the dock near Paul's ship, they weep with him, knowing that their father in the faith is departing for the last time. And Paul boards the ship, knowing that his apostolic missionary work has been completed. His time in this part of the world is over, and the final phase of his ministry is now beginning. He sails away from his friends with one place on his mind, and that is the city of Rome. A lot of stuff happens in those four chapters. Paul is, as we've seen him all through the book of Acts up to this point, is unrelenting in his absolute commitment to making Jesus famous everywhere that he goes. And he will stop at nothing to see the gospel permeate the known world. I am so... mm, I'm so taken with Paul's conviction as I've studied this for this, for this series. You know, I, I grew up in church. I've known about, I've read the book of Acts my whole life since I could read. And, and I remember studying it in Bible college and I remember thinking about, oh, some, at some point I'll do a series on the book of Acts. But I'll tell you what, as I have been going through this in preparation for this series that we're in right now, I'm absolutely, repeatedly blown away by Paul's unwavering and unrelenting commitment to the gospel. It has challenged me in ways that I can't even begin to tell you. Challenged me to my core, really. How easy it is sometimes that we fold under pressure. How how easy it is. Yet Paul never folded. He never relented. Amen. Amen. I'll talk to you about that here in just a, in just a moment. As, as you guys know, the way that we've been teaching this, and for those who haven't been a part of this series thus far, the way we've taught this is we've taken a key phrase out of each chapter. That way we're able to cover a whole lot more ground that way. It is, of course, a 30,000-foot view. I would love nothing more than to go verse by verse by verse with you, but then we'd be here maybe till Jesus comes back. And so we don't want the series to last that quite that long. But we've taken a phrase from each one of these chapters, and so I'm going to do that for each chapter again today. In chapter 17, the phrase comes back to verse 11 of chapter 17, and it's this phrase, they searched the scriptures day after day. You remember what I mentioned there in our little synopsis about the people, the good people of Berea, who are commendable for their work and the Bible says they're noble. Let me read this to you in two different translations. I'll read this verse 11 out of the New Living, and then we'll read it out of Young's Literal. The New Living says, And the people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica, and they listened eagerly to Paul's message. They searched the scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. Let me read it to you again out of Young's, Young's, Young's literal translation. It says, And these were more noble 
than those in Thessalonica. That's interesting. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word, watch this, with all readiness of mind. Every day examining the writings, whether these things were so. You see, Paul and Silas, when they went into these towns, they they would go in and they would encounter oftentimes Jews who were loyal to the faith, Jews who were continuing and being steadfast to the Jewish tradition and to the Jewish faith. And they said, guys, listen, we've got good news. We found the Messiah. He's here. Because you know, as we've said many weeks prior to this, the Jews at that time were still waiting on the Messiah. Many of them still are waiting today waiting till someday their Messiah would come to set their people free and redeem them. Somebody like Moses, somebody like King David, they're they're looking back over their shoulder in their history to see God's going to raise up somebody that's going to redeem and renew the Hebrew people. And Paul and Silas, in every city that they go to, they find one of these groups of Jews and they say, guys, we found him. We found the Messiah, he's Jesus. And then they would open the scriptures and begin to express and explain why Christ was in fact the Messiah, why Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. And every time they did it, they, made, they, they created two new groups of people, one group that loved everything they said and the other group that wanted to kill them. Amen. How many of you know that religion, in all of its ugliness, will react one of two ways. Either you will yield to the truth or religion will rise up in your heart and you'll want to go, oh, and kill people. (laughs) Maybe you won't want to kill people, but you know what I'm getting at. The religion would rise up, this religious spirit would rise up inside these devout Jews, even though they're God-fearing, even though they love God, but they're misinformed and misunderstood and religion has taken a hold of their heart instead of God having taken a hold of their heart. And now Paul and Silas preach the truth of the gospel to him. And rather than submit themselves to to that truth, they get offended at him and they try to kill him. They try to stone him every place he goes. He's either trying to get stoned or he's sneaking out of the city at night or they're lowering him over the city wall in a basket. And they're like, Paul, you got to get out of here, man. You ticked everybody off again. But then he gets to Berea. And he gets to these folks, and their response is totally different. And the Bible here, I love the way it reads in Young's Literal, says they're more noble than the people in Thessalonica. Because what they did is rather than just assume that Paul was right, and rather than just assume that Paul was wrong, they said, let's go to the Word. Let's go to the Scripture and determine if the things that these guys are saying are actually true. I love that it says in Young's literal that they were with all readiness of mind. They weren't just listening. If you take a note, you may want to write this one down. They weren't just listening. They were engaging with what they heard. I want to encourage you this morning that when we come into, the, into the, the house of God, when we come to church, when we're in our quiet time, when we're, when we're engaging with one another, when we're sharing the word, whenever we're in a place where God is speaking to our spirits, I want to encourage you not to just hear, but to engage with what you hear. Right. Amen. James goes on to tell us in the book of James that it's, it's only when we become doers of the word that we stop deceiving ourselves. 
How many of you have been in a place in your life where you can honestly say, I heard the word and thought I was something until pressure came, and then I realized I didn't actually have a hold of the thing I thought I had a hold of? Amen. They engaged with what Paul said, and they weren't just taking Paul at face value. They actually valued God's word enough to test Paul's message against the scripture. For that, the Bible says that they're more noble. This is a valuable practice for us, especially in the day in which we live. We need to test the message that we hear and see if it stands up to the truth of the gospel. Y'all know that you're not just supposed to just willy-nilly take everything I say as gospel truth. Amen. (laughs) I'm glad I didn't get a ton of amens on that. That's great. Thank you. Appreciate it. No, it's true. You're not supposed to just take what I say and just, just gobble it all up. No, take what I say and then, and then go to God and go to the word. That's the most important part. Go to the scripture and say, Lord, I want to make sure I have personal revelation from you on this that Pastor Josh has said. You see, that's an important practice for us to engage with. Do you want to know why? Because in this environment and in this context, it's okay to fail. It's okay to fall short. It's okay to misunderstand. Why? Because we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. We love each other. And if, if one of us gets off, we're here to help each other and say, oh, hey, well, the, let, me, let me share this with you, and we get back on. It's good practice. You know why? Because when you get out into the world and you start hearing things what the Bible calls doctrines of devils, when you start hearing what Paul describes in Ephesians 4 as every wind of doctrine, you know there's tons and tons of ideologies floating around in the world that, that might sound good, but like my, like my dad likes to say, rat poison is 99% good food. <laughs> Amen. Amen. There's stuff out there that you, that's not good for your spirit, but might sound good to your ears. And the Bible tells us in Hebrews 4 that it's the word of God that will be the discerner of what you hear. You'll be able to know whether what you hear is true or false based on your ability to go back to the scripture and say, what I just heard, does it line up with this? Amen? Very important. There's a lot of error in the world, especially now. This actually brings us to our next point. It brings us to the next chapter, Acts 18. And the key phrase comes out of verse 9. God speaks to Paul in a dream and says these words, Do not be afraid. Speak out and don't be silent. There's a lot of craziness going on in the world. It's time for the church to not be afraid, to speak out, and to not be silent. Can you say amen? If Paul needed to be bold... And speak out in his generation. How about us? Amen. Right? I always thought this was, this was funny. There's, there's two don'ts and one do in this scripture. That's the easy way for you to remember. It's two don'ts, one do. Don't be afraid. Don't be silent. Do speak out. Amen. See, we're so afraid to hurt people's feelings. And we're so afraid to swim upstream. We're so afraid that what we say is going to hurt when what we've actually done is forgotten that God's word 
when it's spoken in love, actually heals and it doesn't hurt. Amen. Hallelujah. I love how the Lord starts this statement. He says, don't be afraid. God will always remind you that it's important that you not be afraid. Fear often stops us and limits our boldness. Amen. Fear often stops us and limits our boldness. Let me ask it to you this way. Let me ask you this question, and I want you to ponder this for a second. How bold would you be about the gospel if you knew that you couldn't fail? Selah. (laughs) How bold would you be about the gospel of Jesus if you knew that in your boldness you couldn't fail? How, how bold would you be to lay hands on the sick if you just knew that you knew that you knew that when I did, they're going to get healed, man? I, there's, there's just no way that I can fail. You see, Paul lived this way. Paul lived with this notion that failure was impossible. Amen. Come on, y'all. Talk to me this morning. See, most of us live the other way around. We, we live as though the impossible is impossible. But Paul was so committed and so convicted and so challenged and so just so committed to this gospel that he said, I'm going to live it and do it no matter what the price, no matter what the cost, and I'm going to be bold doing it. If I'm going to go down, I'm at least going to be bold while I'm on my way down. Hello. What if we lived with the notion that failure was absolutely impossible? What if we got the mindset that says, no matter what I encounter, greater is he that actually lives in me than he that's actually living in the world? I, I talked to the, to the young people on Friday night at youth group uh, downstairs, and I asked them this question. I said, how real is Jesus to you? Is he just real at church? Is he just real to your friends? Is he just real to mom and dad? Or is he real that when you step outside of the doors of church, he's still just as real as he was when we were in his presence singing hallelujah? You see, Paul lived with an awareness, a perpetual awareness. I believe all the people in the book of Acts, all the believers did. They lived with this awareness that God was real, that Jesus was real, that Jesus was more real than their issue. These guys are facing prison. They're facing torture. They're facing being burned at the stake. I mean, go go read Fox's Book of Martyrs and see what the early church went through. They were dealing with all kinds of crazy. And yet in the face of that, they said, "Our, our Jesus is more real to us than being burned at the stake. Selah. It's time to be bold. It's time to not be afraid. It's time to grab the bull by the horns, as they say. It's time to go for it in the kingdom of God. Listen, time is short. You say, Pastor, are we in the last days? I believe we are, but even if we're not, it's my last days and it's your last days. Amen. Amen. I was talking to a guy that I work with the other day, and he made a joke. He's like, I said, how you doing today, Tim? He said, I've been dying since I was born. <laughs> okay. 
But there's some element of truth to that, right? I mean, we're, we're not all going to live forever. So even if, it, you know, even if you see the return of Jesus in your lifetime or if you don't, you're supposed to live like you are. You're supposed to live like tomorrow might be your last breath. And, I, and I'm not going to you know, uh, just meander through life. I'm not going to be quiet and silent. I'm going to be bold about the things that God has done in my life. Amen. Yes. Speak up and speak out. Yes. Now is not the time for the church to be silent. Why? Because our generation needs Jesus, man. Amen. Our generation just needs Jesus. Amen? Now, moving on. I'd love to sit and camp there for the rest of the day, but I got two more chapters to cover in 13 minutes. So here we go. Acts 19, verse 12, we turn the corner, and now Paul has shifted over into Ephesus, you remember. And uh, verse 12 tells us this amazing thing, which is that handkerchiefs and aprons that had merely touched Paul's skin were placed on sick people, and they were healed of their diseases, and evil spirits were expelled. Wow. Yes. I mean, what... <laughs> When you got so much of God living on the inside of you and you become aware of the fact that he's living on the inside of you, powerful things can happen. So powerful that they touch your clothes and they get healed. Or they touch your handkerchief or they touch this towel, you know, and I wipe my sweat on it. Here, go put this next to a sick person. You say, well, that's crazy. No, it's supernatural. It's a big difference, amen? It's a big difference. That's nuts. No, it's God. It's actually Jesus moving in his church the way that he said he would. John chapter 14, verse 12, Jesus said, These works that I do shall you do also, and greater works than these. I mean, if the power of God flowed out of Jesus' clothes when the woman with the issue of blood touched it, then it should be flowing out of your and my clothes too. Amen? Come on. Hallelujah. See, that makes me uncomfortable. Well... You're not going to like heaven. <laughs> no, we don't want to make anybody uncomfortable. Well, maybe a little bit. Sometimes when we get hit with discomfort is when we start to actually be prompted to change and grow. Say, oh, that stretches my faith. That makes me a little bit uncomfortable to think that power could come out of my clothes and heal somebody. See, here's the problem with the, with the woman with the issue of blood. You know that story? It's very similar to Paul's situation here. Paul actually couldn't get to everybody. The church in Ephesus had grown so big that Paul couldn't get to everybody. Uh, I was reading one theologian who suggested that it was between 60 and 90,000 people in the church at Ephesus. It was the world's first megachurch. I know we think that megachurches got here in the late 80s, but they were actually around in Paul's ministry. And Paul couldn't physically get to everybody, so they said, okay, Paul, give me that, give me that jacket you were wearing earlier. I'm going to go throw this on my sick Aunt Betty, and we're going to see what happens. And people were getting healed, and, and evil spirits were coming out of folks. And it's very similar to Jesus' testimony in uh, the book of Mark, where the woman with the issue of blood comes to him and says, if I can but touch the hem of his garment, I shall be made well. And here's the problem with that story. You want to know what it is? Most of us in Christianity today identify with the woman with the issue of blood instead of identifying with Christ Jesus. 
in that story. I I went to pray uh, for a young man one time. I was called and was asked to come pray for this young man. And uh, I called my buddy Jim Hockaday. Some of y'all know who Jim is. He's ministered here at our church and used to run the healing school at Rama Bible Training Center in in, uh, Oklahoma and Tulsa. And I called him. I said, I'm going to lay my hands and, and pray for this young man. I said, got any thoughts? And he told me, he said, absolutely. He said, when you go in there, you be bold and you declare what's going to happen. You declare that when I lay my hands on you, the power of God's going to go into you and the thing that's in you is going to come out of you because the power of God that's going into you is greater than the thing that's in you that needs to come out. And see, if we, if we only identify as the ones who need to be healed instead of the ones who have been assigned by God to issue healing to the world, come on, I, I don't want to identify with the problem when God has anointed me to be the solution. Amen. Oh, man. There's about half of y'all really excited about this, and the other half's like, I'm not sure. It's in the Bible. Mark chapter 16 says, they shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. You are anointed. The Bible says in 1 John that we have an anointing from the Holy One and we know all things. God has given us an anointing from his spirit to absolutely be world changers. You and I ought to wake up every morning with the expectation God's going to do something in me today that's going to flip this community on its head. God's going to do something in me today that's going to cause somebody around me to get saved, delivered, healed, set free, restored, redeemed, and covered in the blood of Jesus. Amen? It's time that we shift our mindset a little bit. Now, what do we believe is happening when we lay hands on the sick? not a trick question. (laughs) God's power is getting involved, guys. God's power is getting involved. The anointing of God is moving from you into that person's life. And it doesn't matter whether they're physically sick, whether they have a, you know, some issue in their body. Maybe they're mentally troubled. Maybe their emotions are haywire. Maybe they're, maybe they've just been beat up by life and they need healing on the inside. What do we do? We put our arm around him and we pray and we say, God, touch this person's life. Let your power begin to flow into them. You see, at the end of the day, we're not the miracle workers. God is. Amen. Take the pressure off yourself, y'all. Amen. Take the pressure off yourself. You don't have to produce anything. You're not the miracle worker. Jesus is. All you and I have been called to do is become a good conduit. Amen? Right up here, guys. All we have to do is become a good conduit of his power and of his presence. Let me give you just a quick example, and then I'll get to my last point, and we'll go eat lunch, okay? There, y'all are familiar with electric energy, right? It's powering everything that's on right now. The air conditioning, the lights, the sound, all of this stuff. Electric energy is transferable. If it weren't, none of the lights or the sound or the air conditioning or anything would work, right? When we want the lights on in here to turn on, we hit the switch. The power flows from the power source. It goes through these little tiny copper wires and it goes into the light fixture and fires up that light bulb and boom, we can see light. Here's the thing. The wires, 
don't produce anything. The fixture doesn't produce anything. The light bulb doesn't produce anything. It merely responds to and conducts the power that's coming into it from a greater source. Amen. Amen. You and I aren't responsible to heal the sick. Jesus is. We're responsible to pray for them. We're responsible to lay hands on them. And as we do, we're responsible to expect that the power of God that's resident on the inside of you and me is going to come out of us and flow into that individual and see them transformed. We get in trouble when we think it's our job to fix everything and fix everybody. I was on the phone yesterday with Pastor Don, one of my mentors, and and he said, you know, it's just so much better when we just let Jesus be the boss, when we just let God be in control. Take the pressure off yourself, man. You're not the power source. You're just a little tiny piece of copper. You're just a little thin wire that's, our, our whole job is to just get out of the way and let Jesus be Jesus in the life of people. Amen. That's what Paul was doing, and he did it so effectively that people he didn't even pray for got healed. That they just wiped his sweat on their jacket and said, take this and lay it on somebody and they'll be healed. Isn't that amazing? Come on, isn't that amazing? It's powerful. In the last few minutes that I have here, we turn over to Acts 20. Paul's had this amazing revival Ephesus is turned upside down for the power of God and he's getting ready to leave that part of the world that he's spent the last 15 plus years in. As I said, he was talking with those men, those elders at the dock as before he boards his ship and he's telling them how important it is that they do not let go of the ministry that he started in them. Amen. And he says to them in verse 27, and this is what gripped me so hard. Acts chapter 20, verse 27. He says to them, I didn't shrink back. I didn't shrink back. You see, when it comes to the kingdom of God, when it comes to our responsibility to disciple the nations of the world, it will always feel easier to shrink back rather than to press forward. When it comes time, when the rubber meets the road and it's time for us to be the church that we're called to be and be the disciples that we're called to be and be the evangelistic voice that we're called to be in our community, when it's time to do something big for God, it's always going to feel easier to just ease back instead of move forward. But Paul tells him real clearly, says, guys, you can't do that. You can't shrink back. I didn't shrink back, and you can't either. Yeah, there's going to come people after I leave that are going to try to come and preach doctrine that's going to undo, try to undo everything that I've just told you. There's going, to be, there's going to be false teachers that arise that come in after me, wolves in sheep's clothing that are going to come and try to deceive you. There's going to be people that try to come and hurt you and rob your salvation from you. But when that happens, you have to stand your ground. You have to press forward. You can't go back. you got to move forward in the kingdom of God. 
And he says, I didn't shrink back. It's because faith never takes the easy route. Faith is never looking for a quick fix or for a way out of something difficult, for a way out of challenge. Faith never, faith's never running for the emergency exit. Amen, come on. Now, I don't know about you, I love sitting in the emergency exit on a plane because there's more leg room, but faith doesn't like the emergency exit row. Faith says, I'm going to turn, if this plane starts going down, I'm going to get with God and we're going to keep it in the air. When everything in you says, jump, faith says, "Mm mm-mm, I'm not taking the easy way out. Yeah, it would feel so much easier for me to just lay back and case sarah, sarah, whatever will be, will be. Just let things happen the way they are and, and we'll be fine. No, faith loves a challenge. Amen. Are y'all awake this morning? Have I preached too long? I didn't preach till dawn, so I'm still doing better than Paul. Amen. Faith loves a challenge. Faith loves the opportunity to go, to go square on head-to-head, eyeball-to-eyeball with the enemy and say, I got you, because greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. I'm not going to run from a challenge. I'm going to run at a challenge. Yes. Yes. Amen? Y'all remember David and Goliath, don't you? Come on. What did he do? He didn't run away from Goliath, and he didn't stand still. He ran at Goliath. Because he said, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and a shield and an army and a guy to carry your shield and all I got's these five rocks, but I only need one because greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. And you're going down and cut your head off today. Come on. When did we get so passive? I mean, Jesus lives inside of us. The greater one lives in us. Romans chapter 8 verse 14 or verse 11 says that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the one that lives in me and dwells in me. And he's the one that's giving me power and life and sustaining me and causing me to be more than a conqueror. Why in the world would I take the easy way out? Amen. Don't shrink back. Paul said, I didn't shrink back. You don't shrink back either. Amen. You don't shrink back either. Don't limit your effectiveness in the kingdom of God by just looking for the path of least resistance. Find the darkest places and run to them with the light of the gospel. Wherever the situation feels dark, don't run from it, run to it. The Bible says you are the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hidden. Amen? We've been given this awesome responsibility. We've been given this great grace this gift that God has laid in our, in our lap that he wants us to go into the world and change it. But he doesn't want us to conform to the world. He doesn't want us to become like the world. He actually wants us to look different. I read a, an awesome book one time called The Upside Down Church by a gentleman named Greg Laurie. He's an awesome pastor out in California. And he says, we have to understand that the gospel is going to be confrontational. It's always going to be confrontational. 
The reason it's always going to become confrontational is because light and darkness are always confronted. It's because the gospel will always confront whatever the darkness is with something God has that's better than the darkness. Amen. The gospel will confront pain with healing. The gospel will confront confusion with clarity. The gospel will confront sin with righteousness. You see, we get that wrong. We get that part wrong oftentimes that we think that the gospel confronts sin with hitting people over the head with our Bible and convincing them of how wrong they are. That's not what the gospel is for, and that's not how we're supposed to use it. The gospel is to confront sin with the righteousness that God offers through the blood of Jesus Christ. That no matter what condition a person finds themselves in, no matter if they've been a good little church mouse and have gone to church their whole life and never so much as cussed at anybody, or they just got done killing people, the gospel is as effective as it can be for, for both of those extremes and everyone in between. What did we see in Paul's life way back in Acts chapter 9? Y'all remember that several Sundays back? We saw a guy who was literally murdering the church, throwing Christians in jail, hated the gospel, hated Jesus, hated the name of Jesus, man. And what was he doing? Everybody who espouses the name of Jesus, he's trying to kill him or throw him in jail or both. And all it took was one encounter. All it took was one moment with Jesus to absolutely transform his entire life. Don't tell me the gospel can't work. But here's the thing. When Jesus showed up, he didn't look like a Pharisee. He didn't look like Paul's world. He looked like something completely different. You see, you and I were not called to, Jesus didn't say in in the book of Mark, go into all the world and try not to be noticed. Right? No, he said, go into all the world and and make disciples and preach the gospel and and change everything. Go recapture and reclaim this world for the sake of my kingdom. Preach to everything that'll listen. Amen. When I was a kid, I used to preach to my stuffed animals. I did. That's how me and my sister would play when we were kids. We used to play church. She was the usher and the worship leader. All of the stuffed animals were the people. And I would get up and I would grab a drumstick and I would stand with my little drumstick from my drum set and I'd preach. And then I'd lay hands on the sick and boom, 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 boom. I'd go lay hands on all those stuffed animals. Every one of them got healed. I had a 100% success rate. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Now, but here's the thing, guys. God doesn't want to change you just so, that, just so that he can suck the joy out of your life. He actually wants to put joy into your life. The, the darkness that we find ourselves living in is nothing compared to the light and the joy and the peace and the safety and the security and the clarity of a life with Christ. He's got good plans for us. and Just like Paul, we need to be those who are not going to shrink back, but take the truth of what we know and run into the harvest field with it and preach the gospel boldly, man. Amen. Let's stand up to our feet. We hope that this message inspired you and filled your heart with faith. If you would like to visit our church, 
Check out www.highcountrychristian.com for service times and location information. Thanks again for listening to this audio presentation from High Country Christian Church, where Jesus loves you, we love you, and your life counts.